And please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may your truth be unveiled. May you accomplish all your divine purposes, knowing that your word will not return to you void. It will accomplish all you do purpose. Use my lips. Give us ears to hear. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There's no doubt that the author of Hebrews was thoroughly immersed, thoroughly acquainted with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. In fact, it's a difficult book, difficult letter to understand without some knowledge of the Old Testament. Hebrews is something like a sermon in written form to professing Jewish Christians who are now under pressure to go back to the former ways of Judaism, back to the law, back to that which they had before Christ had come. Now, in Jewish culture, no one had the influence. No one was more revered than Moses. No one. Not even Abraham. Not even King David. Moses is the most honored person in Jewish society. I'm, I'm sure you know something, at least, of the story. You may be very familiar with it, but I'm sure you know something of it. Sentenced to death for being a male Hebrew baby. He was marvelously, miraculously preserved and rescued by God, drawn from the bulrushes, as you remember, by the daughter of Pharaoh, then raised in the royal house, raised in nobility, given a royal education. Later, he was called by God from the burning bush, where God revealed his name to him as I Am. That's dramatic, to say the least. Moses delivered Israel by the power of God. We could read Exodus chapter 7 through to 12 and see the plagues that were poured out on Egypt. And yet the people of God, Israel, suffered none of it. Culminated in the parting of the Red Sea. Israel went through the waters on dry ground, yet the entire Egyptian army were destroyed in the waters. I've heard uh, one critic so-called scholar of the Bible, who was one of those who just does not believe in miracles, not because of anything in the text, that was just his worldview that he imposed on the text. And I remember hearing of a lecture where he said 
that at that particular time, they all seem to have an English accent, at that particular time, the uh, Red Sea would have been four to five inches deep. And so it wasn't miraculous, it was just the people of Israel walked through, got a little bit wet, and there was this uh, obnoxious but wonderful believer at the back of the lecture hall who said, what a miracle! He shouted out, what a miracle! And the lecturer was all befuddled and said, what miracle? I've just uh, shown you it wasn't a miracle. Four to five inches of deep water is as shallow as it gets. And Oh, what a miracle! That's amazing! He says, what's amazing? Drowning the Egyptian army in five inches of water. <laughs> yep, something unusual happened. We could go on. He parted the Red Sea. How many times have you done that? He smote the rock, as we heard earlier, so Israel could drink. When Israel committed idolatry uh, with the golden calf incident, it was Moses who interceded on behalf of the people to God and obtained pardon. On and on we could go, but that's quite a resume. I'm sure you'll agree. Let's turn in our Bibles, keep your place in Hebrews. Let's go to Numbers. I'd like you to read just a few verses here, Numbers, where there is a summary. The fourth book of our Bible, Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. We read in verse 5 these words. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Notice he communicates in a vision to the prophet and in a dream. And now note the comparison with Moses. Look at verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. That's a phrase we'll come back to. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So there God says, though he has other prophets, there's a different form of communication with them, vision and dream. Yet with Moses, there was a massive comparison, massive contrast. I speak mouth to mouth with him, clearly not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Elsewhere in Psalm 103, verse 7, we read these words. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. That's a prayer I've pray, prayed since I was a teenager. Lord, let me not just know your acts, let me know your ways. Well, that's what he did with Moses. He made known his ways to Moses, although the people simply saw his acts, his displays of power. So Moses had a unique call. He was the lawgiver. It's from his pen that we have the Ten Commandments, came through Moses. Moses wrote Israel's history Divinely inspired history, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of our Bible written by Moses, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books. Here's then Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, 
whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now, what takes place as we're back now in the book of Hebrews is the writer deems it necessary to declare the superiority of Christ to Moses. You might think, why would he do that? Isn't that obvious? No, when you are living, breathing, and being raised in Israel, in a Jewish culture, there can indeed be an over-appreciation of Moses and an under-appreciation of the Lord Jesus. And that was the danger. And that's why Hebrews was written. There's a danger of spiritual drift, which is marked at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, let, it, let everyone be aware of that. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Then it tells of the magnitude of what we have received in the gospel in Christ. So there's a danger of drifting back to Judaism. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 is one of the uh, many places in Hebrews where that is set apart, where it's put, because there's an especially real threat of persecution and it's easier to go back than stand for Christ. So in chapter 3, verse 1, we read the first word, therefore. It seems a strange place to start a chapter, but I guess you have to start somewhere. There's been two therefores in previous verses. Verse 14 of chapter 2, we, say, we see the word since, therefore. And then verse 17, therefore. And here we have another therefore. And we should always, when we see a therefore, always ask, what is it there for? It's there on because, because of what has come previously. On the basis of what has been shared, we now make this declaration. Therefore, holy brothers, recognizing the fact that we're not brothers because of our humanity, but because of our adoption into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are a holy community and holy brothers together. You who share in a heavenly calling. That's the thrust of Hebrews, though nothing much seems to be happening on earth. The Christian community was under threat of persecution. There was not this massive church growth taking place because of that. It didn't look like much was happening on earth. But if we could see into the spiritual realm, as Hebrews 12 makes clear, what we are a part of is something so vast we cannot even conceive of it with our earthly minds. A vast array of angels, God himself, the Lord Jesus, and innumerable saints made righteous in Christ. Every church service, every Lord's Day is a spectacular event, bigger by far than any Super Bowl event, whether there be eight in the congregation or 8,000. It is massive because we, the church, go up to Mount Zion and join with angels in festal array in declaring the triune God and his perfection and praise. Oh, amazing things. And that's what Hebrews is about. It's a walk of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, as 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 declares. And Hebrews 11 is the great Hall of Faith, Hall of Fame chapter of those who walked and ran the race before us, who are inspiring us by their testimony. Abraham and Isaac and 
all of the patriarchs and the men and women of God through the centuries who have stood the test of time in their walk of faith, then Hebrews says, now, kind of forget them, looking to Jesus now. Be inspired by their testimony, now looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 3, 1, then, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. That's the thrust of Hebrews. That's where it's taking us. We're here, but we're going there. We're called to heavenly uh, supplies, heavenly realities, heavenly calling as brothers and sisters in Christ. Then we're given this instruction. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle and high priest. Jesus is only called apostle once in the New Testament, and it's right here. He's called high priest a dozen times in the New Testament, all of them in Hebrews. And so here we have a phrase that is not repeated anywhere else, apostle and high priest. It's only used here. Now, What is amazing is if we would summarize the Old Testament and its view of Moses, we would say he is the apostle and high priest of Israel. That's true of Moses. But the author is very keen to make us aware that this is also now true of Christ in a very vastly superior way to Moses in the New. The word apostle, apostolos in Greek, means one sent forth. And you could be sent on an errand and be an apostle with a lowercase a. Uh, Just go to the store and buy something for me. You actually could use the word apostle. I send you for that. But in the New Testament, that word is given much more preeminence and it is a superior word and it speaks of one who has a designated calling to be sent forth by God. And Jesus is amazing, as we know, and his title is Apostle, as well as High Priest. He's sent by the Father. Who's the first Apostle in the New Testament? You might think, well, it was the Twelve. Naturally, the first Apostle was the Lord Jesus, sent on a mission, a unique mission. He's the ultimate Apostle. All apostleship comes from him. He is the source of all apostleship. No one has been sent like Jesus. He has a unique apostleship. We're not called to do what he did in that sense, nor can we. We were not born of a virgin. We don't live a sinless life. If we die even on a cross, we're not. Uh, producing an atoning sacrifice for sin. He had a special assignment. He was unique. The second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin, born into this world, born under the law, kept the entire law of God in word, in thought, and in deed, and lived a sinless, pure life before his Father, sent on a mission to live the law for us. And then on the cross, died in our place. Three days later, rose again from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of all authority in this universe. That's our Lord Jesus. A unique assignment and he was sent to do it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. Anyone who repents and believes in this Jesus and believes the message 
of this one is saved, is delivered from the anger of God because the anger of God came upon the Son of God in our place on the cross. He took the punishment you and I deserved, all those who would ever believe. He took our sin upon him. The Lord laid it on him as Isaiah 53 declares. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the rebellion of us all. So we're told, consider Jesus. That word consider speaks of attention. It speaks of continuous observation to regard with intensity. This is not a one-time event. It means, as R. Kent Hughes uh, writes, to fix one's attention in such a way that the significance of the thing is learned. This is not a casual look. This is a gazing. This is a long, enduring glance. Think of Jesus as the sent one. That's what we're told. Consider Jesus the sent one, the apostle. Think of him. Apply your mind fully to this. Engage your brain. Concentrate. That's what the writer is saying. And then make the necessary application. It requires concentration, focus. All right, you see all of the world. You see uh, every religious leader displayed. But focus on Jesus. Focus, concentrate, engage your mind and see him as the one sent forth from the Father. No one else was sent like him. Buddha wasn't. Muhammad wasn't. Confucius wasn't. The Lord Jesus had a unique assignment. The second person of the Godhead, there is none like him. And if we've read Hebrews up to this point, we could never put him on the level of any other human being. It will keep us from the cults when we understand this is our God and this God became man. What a difference from every other pretender. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. He also said, he who is not with me is against me. Stakes are very high when it comes to Jesus. So concentrate, think, engage your mind, see Jesus, see what the scripture says about him, and understand and make application in your heart. Focus. If you do it rightly, it will keep you from deception, from the so-called Christian cults. This is not a quick glance. And your eternal well-being depends on how you see Christ. Keep your place in Hebrews 3. Go to 2 Corinthians, back in the New Testament, just a little ways. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. See Christ. Focus. Focus. For parents teaching the child to drive a car, often they will say, focus, focus. Well, this is bigger than that. The issue bigger than that. Look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, a veil speaks of something that covers over something else so that the reality is hidden. If our gospel is hidden, if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded. I would suggest to you that's the, uh, the nature of everyone outside of Christ who have not yet been born again. What? They are blind. They're not just short-sighted. You ever shared the gospel with someone and 
you walk away and you think, they just didn't see it. They just didn't see it. That's what Scripture says. Unless God gives them eyes, they will not see. Not short-sighted, not just slightly out of focus. No, they're blind. They cannot see something beautiful. To you, it's obvious. Can you not see this Jesus? Can you not understand who he is? And to them, it's, well, I'm glad it works for you. I'm glad you're interested. I don't... I, don't, I, don't, I sing a hymn and I've done it when I was eight and I don't want to do it again. They, you know, I'm glad you find something in it. That's not it. This Jesus is God manifested in the flesh and our world and eternal well-being depends on how we see him. And we can't make ourselves see. God has to open our eyes. In their case, the God of this world has made short-sighted, no, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is the image of God. If someone is truly blind, truly blind, though you may be trying to help them with a flashlight, it's not going to do them any good. What they need is, and are, new eyes. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved Finish it for me. A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Hymn writers, get it. I hope you get it, and I hope God opens your eyes to see what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Light is shining whenever the gospel is proclaimed. It's up to God to give people eyes to see the light. And the light is the gospel of the glory of Christ, is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We don't speak of ourselves as the testimony. I was this and I was that. That's part of the story. But our message is not us. The message is not the change in us. The message is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something outside of us. It's news. Gospel, euangelion in Greek, means good news. Be strange for an announcer on the news to get up on a, a TV channel and say it's the six o'clock news and I'm having a good day. I got a pay raise and guess what? My foot used to hurt, but I've taken these pills and I'm feeling so much better. You think what news is this? The news is about something outside of the studio, outside of him. Something has happened in Paris. Something has happened in Australia. It's an event that they are now retelling. They're telling the story of something. And that's the news we have. Not ourselves. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ. He's the good news. Amen. Amen. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as, say it for me, Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 1, of course. Everything was... Not as it is now, until God said, let there be. And the message of verse 6 is, that's what God has done for Christians. God has stood outside, so to speak, the wall and the veil of the obscuring of Christ and removed the veil and said, let there be light. And you now see. That's why the Christian, truly biblically informed, attributes their salvation all to God, all to his grace. 
Let light shine out of darkness. Light be, literally. Light has shone in the darkness and has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you're given eyes to see, you see beauty in Christ, you see the treasure of Christ. Has that happened in your life? Once it has, you have to say yes to Him. You have to say, I want Him. I can't think of a more glorious thing. I can't think of a less glorious thing, a most foreboding thing to spend eternity without seeing Him. Heaven is about seeing Christ, not simply having a place to go that's rent-free. It's about Christ. Heaven is not an eternal golf course. The 18th hole where you always make holes in one. Heaven is not a hall of mirrors, as one man said. It's not seeing you in your perfection. It's seeing Christ. It's seeing Him. That's the joy of heaven. Heaven won't be heaven without Him. If you get there and there's an announcement, our Lord Jesus is out creating galaxies for the next 10,000 years, but we've got an amazing entertainment program in place. You'd say, uh, is this the right place? I want to see Him. Why? Because though you've not seen Him with your eyes, your heart has seen the reality and the beauty of Christ and it makes all that we go through here worth it. We will see Him. Are you blind or can you see? What were they blind to? Blind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Back to Hebrews. Focus. Consider Jesus. The Apostle sent on a unique mission. We could say his mission was accomplished. And it says, high priest. We've already encountered that word in Hebrews 2, verse 17. For the first time, here we see it again. One of a dozen places in Hebrews. He's the one sent forth, and he is the high priest. Notice this next phrase, of our confession. What is a high priest? He's the one who makes sacrifice, who intercedes. And that intercession counts for those he makes sacrifice for. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He's the ultimate apostle. He's the ultimate high priest. High priest of our confession. So, concentrate. This is not automatic. It takes focus. It takes discipline. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews 12 says. Now we are to reflect, we're to ponder, we're to muse, think about Jesus. I once had the privilege of taking a, a, a kind of elderly couple from England who were engaged in ministry for many decades, now were close to retirement. They came to Arizona and they preached in the church, or at least he did, and uh, they had a a wonderful impact in my own life. Name was Don. The wife's name was Heather. And I asked them what they wanted to do. They had a few days off. They said, we'd love to see the Grand Canyon. I said, great. And I said, uh, in that you've not seen it before. No, not seen it before. I thought, what can we do that would be special? And this is what we did. We went a day early, arrived at evening at a hotel just a few miles from the Grand Canyon and we got up very early the next day so we could get to the canyon to experience sunrise at the Grand Canyon. We rose early, we got there and we sat in awe for about 45 minutes, not even really speaking to one another, we're just looking at the colors as uh, 
Colors had never been seen before with our earthly eyes to see the beauty of the canyon and God's creation. On the way home, they called it one of the highlights of their lifetime. But guess what? They truly gazed. They truly focused. They concentrated. They didn't miss it. They didn't want to go home and forget what they saw. On another occasion, I went to the canyon and was looking out and there was some guy who came in a sports car and he drove up and parked this car and he walked to the edge of the canyon and he looked said, nice. And then he walked back to his car. And as quickly as that, it was all over. Nice. That's not the way to see the canyon. See him. Gaze on him. And once you do, you're spoiled for this world. You want him forever. High priest of our confession. Notice that word confession. It's the Greek word homologia. It's really two words in Greek sandwiched together. Homos, which means the same, and logos, which means to speak. And so it means to speak the same thing. So notice the phrase, consider Jesus, the one sent forth, the apostle, and high priest of our saying the same thing. Now in the word of faith movement, they take this to an extreme. And usually... Deception is truth taking to an extreme. And they talk about confessing this and confessing that. I believe what's in view here is the confession of the one we're focusing on, the Lord Jesus. A focus on him and a confession of him. And in this sense, this is what the word means, homologia, to say the same thing. To say the same thing. We're not invited to say what we think but to say what he, what God says about him. And primarily, this is a reference to Christ. So let's ask the question, what does God say about him? Well, as we read Philippians chapter 2, seven steps down, seven steps up, the Bible tells us that we are to declare him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name Lord. And that, in fact, is what we read elsewhere with the word confession. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. Can we say that out loud together? Jesus is Lord. By the way, we don't make him Lord, he is Lord. Now, we can confess him as Lord, and he can become personally our Lord, but it's not like our confession puts him on the throne. He's already on the throne, honey. He is already ruling the universe. It's simply acknowledgement of it. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says, No one can say, the words you just said, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit, except by the Holy Spirit. And here it's obviously not just saying no one can say those three words. But no one can say those three words with understanding. He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is. And in the first century, to deny the lordship of Caesar and to proclaim the lordship of Jesus might cost you your life. And so it was not a flippant thing to say those words. And therefore no one can say it. 
No one can say those words except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving you eyes to see and the courage to say it. Hallelujah. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Have you acknowledged his lordship? Have you come under his rule? He's the reigning king. Let me ask you, who is Jesus to you? What is your confession concerning him? So let's recount where we've gone so far. Therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling beyond what earthly eyes can see. Consider, focus, consider Jesus, the one sent forth, the apostle and high priest of our saying the same thing. Jesus is Lord. Consider heavenly realities rather than the temporal. Everything here is temporal. Everything is subject to change. Everything visual to the senses. As we grow up, everything we learn, we learn through the senses. By what we can see, what we can smell, what we can taste, what we can touch. A missing one. Ear, what we can hear. Five senses. Yet the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And I believe the reference there is to more than simply the sense mechanism, the sense gate, but everything that we perceive through the senses. If we could see in this room spiritually, I believe we would see the presence of angels. I believe we would see what earthly eyes could not see, and we would see heavenly Jerusalem. And Hebrews 12 says that's where you have come, not where you will come one day. We are raised up on the Lord's day to join something amazing. But we can't hear it. We can't see it. But we walk by faith. Move beyond the temporary. What's the point? There's only that many people here. There's only that. There's only this. There's... Can you see what earthly eyes cannot see? If God gives you eyes, you'll see. And you'll say, this is the most amazing thing. Sunday's the most important day of the week. The Lord's Day, where we join with saints and angels in the heavenly Jerusalem, praising the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what we'll do for all eternity. Verse 2, talking of Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. He was sent on a mission and he was faithful to it. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, what the writer is now going to do, he's declared the lordship of Christ, the fact that he's God in chapter 1 of Hebrews, and chapter 2, he's man, he's truly God, he's truly man, just like us except for sin. Now he's going to focus on the fact that Jesus is superior to Moses. You might think, why would he need to do that? Because he's writing to Jews. Moses is bigger to Jews than Abraham Lincoln or George Washington is to Americans. He is... The tops in terms of earthly respect and honor. But Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. What he did was better. What he did was greater. As much as Moses did, Jesus did more, far more. In fact, the revelation of the scripture is that everything Moses did, he did under the power of the Lord Jesus. Here's a quote by Hugh Montefiore. It was commonly held that an architect is greater than what he builds. 
Let me read that again. It was commonly held that an architect is greater than what he builds. That becomes very helpful to us when we now continue to read verses 3 through 6. We're going to read of Moses' faithfulness, verse 2, Jesus' faithfulness in verse 2. And in that sense, they were both faithful. Moses was considered faithful. He sinned and was kept from the promised land, but the overall assessment of God here in Hebrews is he was faithful. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Oh, here we go. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Let me again give you that quote. He was commonly held, it was commonly held that an architect is greater than that which he builds. Now, Moses' faithfulness is not under scrutiny here, but his assignment is, and the point the writer is making is that his work is inferior to the superior work of the Lord Jesus. Hebrews tells us he's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things. Other scriptures say all things were made by him and for him. And in his finished work as high priest, not only bringing the sacrifice, but being the sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work was finished. That was never true of the high priest in Israel. Always things to do. Always offerings to be made. Jesus made one sacrifice. That's it. It's done. It's finished. I can sit down. And he ever lives as the high priest to make intercession for those he made the sacrifice for, the people of God. So we continue reading. Jesus is counted as having more glory than Moses. In what way? As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Think of painters. Think of Rembrandt. They'll pay more for a painting of Rembrandt than they would if I try to paint something. Art was my worst subject at school. Sports was my best, but art was my worst. If I make a painting, I'm not sure I could get $3 for it. But Rembrandt can go for millions. Architect, let's think about him. He's given more honor than the house he builds. If people find a Rembrandt, just because it's him that did it, whether it was a five-minute thing he did, that can go for hundreds of thousands of dollars because of the worthiness of the painter. Same with the building. Michelangelo did what he did. And that reverence given to what he did is because of who he is as an architect, as a designer. Why would someone pay exorbitant money for a Rembrandt original painting rather than one I painted? Because of the honor ascribed to the painter. Here's the analogy. It's a, an analogy of comparison. And it describes the comparison between Jesus and Moses. Jesus. What he did... As the builder of the house is much more worthy of honor than the house itself. What's interesting to me is Moses 
is part of the house. Jesus is building the house. The house is the church. The house of God. We are the stones, the living stones that have been made into a building. And Moses is one of the stones. Faithful as he was, he's simply a part of the furniture. Part of the building. But Jesus is the builder of the house. If you belong to Christ, you don't belong to the church of Moses. You don't belong to the body of Moses. You belong to the church of Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. So just as Jesus is superior to angels, he's superior to Moses, the greatest figure of the Old Testament. No one is more revered and honored than Moses in Jewish society. But Jesus is worthy of more honor, more glory. And we are his house. Let's continue reading. Verse 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So God uses people, but he's the ultimate builder. Verse 5 again speaks of Moses as faithful. He was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. He was doing his thing, but something greater was coming. And he was a testimony to that. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See the comparison? Moses was faithful as a servant. Christ is faithful as a son. He's the heir apparent. He's the one who owns it all. He's building it and it all is his. That's not true of Moses. He was simply a servant. And we are his house, verse 6, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Some people look at this and say, well, we're only, we're only his if we hold fast and I haven't held fast all the way and I don't know if I can say I'm part of the house because I haven't yet faced everything I'm going to face in life and yeah, 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 I understand but here's our confidence when we understand that God is the author Christ is the author of our faith someone writes the book a book they're called an author and if someone's an author the book's only there because the author was there that's true of your faith and the faith that has caused you to continue in the message and the gospel of Christ so far is the fact that God started the process and he'll see it through to completion. And so you could look at this and say, well, I'm, I, I'm a part of it if, if, if indeed I hold fast my confidence. Well, here's what you need to see. You will hold fast your confidence if God is the one who started the process of faith on the inside of you. If you came up with your faith, it ain't going to last too long. Read the parable of the soils, Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13. One man said it this way, the faith that fizzles was flawed from the first. The faith that God gives us is a persevering faith that will continue to believe. There may be times when 
We're away from the Lord, but we come back. Peter was a true child of the Father, true, true child of God, and he denied Christ. But he returned. And he returned because Christ, as the high priest, prayed for him. He said to him, Satan's desire to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you've turned, not if, when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter came back because he was truly his. Judas never did because he never was a true disciple. How about you? Has God started faith on the inside of you? Or you realize that he's the one who's shown you the value of Christ and that you would not forsake him for anything of this world? I trust that's true of you. Let's conclude with this by saying this. The church was not created by Moses or for Moses but by Christ and for Christ. He said, I will build my church. Are you a part? Are you part of that house? The house that Jesus is building. We are in the house and he owns all of it. Everything Moses was, everything he did, spoke of a future time. Verse 5. But Christ is building his church today. Let me close with a quote from Rick Phillips. It's well documented that the great commanders of history inspired terrific bravery by their simple presence, just by letting their soldiers set their eyes upon them. Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Patton, all had this aura of invincibility that produced undaunted courage in the hearts of those who saw them amidst the fray. This is what the eyes of our faith see when we fix them upon Jesus Christ, who's the captain of our salvation. Napoleon, probably military's, military history's greatest conqueror, used to have his generals come into his tent and look into his eyes before they went out to lead the troops in battle. Likewise, our faith is to behold the face of Christ and his brow once crowned with thorns but now with the laurel wreath of heaven. Napoleon, like most of the other great conquerors of this world, was ultimately defeated. Even those who never lost a battle in life like Alexander the Great nonetheless were defeated by death. But Christ is victor over every foe. When he went into the grave, even death became his captive. Now he lives and reigns forever, placing every enemy under his feet. Let us fix our eyes on him then, and we will find strength for every battle, hope for every trial. Ladies and gentlemen, Brothers and sisters, consider, focus, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our saying the same thing, our confession, Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word of God. Write its truths on our heart. And in this be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.